Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The phone rang. Hi, Paul, it's Simon. Jake's okay. I could hear the relief in Simon's voice and the joy. His son was all right. But I didn't share it, that, that sense of relief and joy, I mean. Because before Simon called, I didn't even know there was a problem with Jake. So to hear this good news that he was okay meant nothing to me. It turns out that little Jake had gone missing and as the hours went by, the family grew increasingly concerned. Their concern turned to out of their minds with worry, which became beside themselves and frantic. They'd even begun to fear the worst. So what good news to know that little Jake was safe and well. But it didn't come to me as good news because I didn't know he was missing in the first place. Today and and through this Easter weekend, we celebrate the most marvellous good news. But we simply won't feel the relief and joy of it until we know the bad news or are concerned by it. Out of our minds with worry about it, besides ourselves and frantic because of it. Until we know the bad news and feel it, the good news doesn't really seem like good news at all. And so to know why Good Friday is So good. We're going to spend this time exploring Romans chapter 3 and we begin with the bad news. The bad news that we are more sinful than we realise. As we turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, we're presented with the conclusion of a detailed argument that has been, well, it's taken two chapters to explore. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have all made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, all are under sin. The Apostle Paul was writing to respectable religious people, people who in their own eyes were righteous, that is, upright and in a good and right standing with Almighty God. And because they felt they had the moral high ground, because they felt so good about themselves, it took two chapters of careful, persuasive argument to convince them that all was not well that it was the same for them as it was for the entire human race. Verse 9, Jews and Gentiles, that is the whole world, religious or not, everyone, end of verse 9, is under sin. Talk about a bombshell. No one wants to be called a sinner. Certainly no no self-respecting, religious, righteous person wants to be put in the same bracket as, as really bad people, sinners. Today, when it comes to sin, some write off sin as an outdated, old-fashioned category from a bygone Victorian era. Others excuse sin. After all, no one's perfect. Most of us are adept at justifying our sin. We're not as bad as others, sex workers, paedophiles, rogue traders, financial fraudsters, drug dealers. Oh, there are plenty of people worse than us. And sometimes, well, we just don't take sin seriously. For some, sin is like the old advert for cream cakes. Do you remember it? Naughty, but nice. But be sure that is not how the Bible sees it. Sin is a serious business. It arouses the wrath of God. God's righteous, settled and controlled anger is always triggered by sin. And so to hear the conclusion in verse 9, all alike are under sin, even religious, respectable, righteous types, people like us, Well, that leaves us in a predicament. 
a precarious predicament, facing the wrath of God. Because this is being written to people who are religious and steeped in the Bible, in support of his conclusion, Paul quotes a string of Bible verses, verse 10, as it is written. That is, as it is written in the Bible. And there are three things to note from this list of scriptures. Firstly, sin has infected everyone. Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. It's emphatic. There are no exceptions. The Bible says we're all in the same sinking boat. Second C from this list, sin is a theological category. By that I mean first and foremost, sin is about how we relate to Almighty God. So this list of Bible verses begins and ends with our approach to God. And it's not good. Verse 11, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. That is, all have turned away from God. And see how the list ends, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin is first and foremost a theological category. I may well be a good, upright citizen who pays my taxes, who's never been in trouble with the police, someone who recycles and is part of the local neighbourhood watch scheme. But if God has no place in my life, I've broken the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. Sin has infected everyone. Sin is a theological category. And third, see from this list, sin is seen in our conduct. It is striking that this list of Bible verses majors on what I say, verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. It's a devastating list, but it's a quite brilliant list to show us our sinfulness. Look, if I'd been trying to convince people of of the sinfulness of all humanity, I'd have started with murder and knife crime, then perhaps moved on to adultery and to all the sexual sin in the world, then perhaps talked about the theft and the fraud that so blights our life these days. But the problem with my list is by the time that I'd have talked about the tongue, most of us would be feeling quite self-righteous. Murder? No, haven't done that one. Adultery? No, I'm faithful to my wife. Fraud? Clean bill of health there. This list, on the other hand, is brilliant because Paul starts with and majors on what comes out of our mouths. And in starting there, he's got us all. Think of the things you say at home. Bad-mouthing the people who annoyed you this day barking at those who irritate you, even those in your own family, the people you love the most get a mouthful. And what about the tone you take with complete strangers on the telephone and the angry outbursts when you're behind the wheel of a car, not to mention the way we blag our way out of tricky situations, bending the truth to justify ourselves. See, think for a moment and think honestly about it and suddenly verses 13 and 14 are not an exaggeration but an accurate diagnosis of everyone who walks this planet. Deceit, poison, cursing and bitterness all flowing all too freely out of our mouths. And it leaves us condemned when we remember that Jesus said, out of the overflow of our heart the mouth speaks. The mouth is a window 
into our hearts, an accurate barometer of what is inside. What I say is a picture of the real me. And it demonstrates I'm a sinner. The tongue he gave me to praise him with, I used to curse others whom he made. Look at what comes out of your mouth. And the bad news is that we are more sinful than we realize We're not the respectable people we present to the watching world. We're not even the people we tell ourselves that we are. And we're certainly not people fit to be in the presence of God. And the really bad news, our sin arouses God's wrath. God's law listed here in this string of verses leaves us condemned, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Do you see what Paul does there? Every mouth is silenced. The mouths that are so full of sharp, heartless and hurtful words, the mouths that are so often trot out self-justifying arguments, when confronted with the truth of God's law, our mouths are silenced. When we honestly measure ourselves by God's standards, we are lost for words, nothing to say, because there is nothing to say in our defense. The bad news is we are more sinful than we ever realized. And no amount of trying to keep God's law can deal with our problem. Actually, God's law shows us our problem, makes us conscious of our sin, as we see at the end of verse 20. It is all very bad news. But look, we have to hear the bad news and feel the bad news first before we realize how good, how very good the good news really is. And so now, having heard the bad news, now, now we're ready for the good news. We are then more sinful than we ever realized and in deeper trouble than our worst nightmare, facing the wrath of God and utterly helpless to escape the judgment. But the good news, oh, the good news is that we're more loved than we ever imagined. Loved by the very God we reject. Loved so much that he's provided a way for us to be right with him. Hear the relief that we've just read in verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known. There's a righteousness available. Despite what I am, I can be right with God because God himself, verse 21, has made a way for me to be put right with him. It's not through law-keeping, verse 21. We can't get right by keeping the law. We can't be religious. We can't be moral enough. We can't even control our tongues and we haven't even considered the rest of our lives. Being righteous, being right with God is not about what we can do because we can't be good. But it's possible to be declared righteous, right with God through faith in Jesus, verse 22. Through putting our faith in the faithful work of Jesus' death on the cross. And the verses that follow explain how God has made it possible for us to be right with him. And there are three words we need to understand here. Verse 24, justification. Verse 24, redemption. And verse 25, propitiation, or as it says here in the NIV, a sacrifice of atonement. 
Those are words that don't exactly roll off our tongues, but Paul's first readers would have been very familiar with them. Believe it or not, these words are down-to-earth terms used in everyday parlance in first century Rome, terms that come from the law court, the slave market, and the temple. Justification from the law court, redemption from the slave market, propitiation from the temple. And so to help us how Jesus is the only way we can be forgiven from our sin and saved from God's wrath, Paul takes us on a day trip. And the first place we arrive is at the law court and the word justification, verse 24. Come with me in your mind. You arrive at the court and discover that this is no ordinary day trip. We're not up in the public gallery looking on. No, to our horror, we're in the dock. All the evidence has been heard. All that remains is for the sentence to be passed. The verdict is not in doubt. We are guilty of crimes against divinity. But then as the judge pronounces the verdict to our amazement, he says, not guilty. Not guilty so there's no punishment. Somehow we've been justified. The judge has declared that I, the guilty sinner, can go free, that I am right with God. And not because I've earned it or deserved it, verse 24, we are justified freely by his grace. The conclusion in chapter 3, verse 9, was right. I am a sinner. I am guilty. So to hear not guilty is remarkable. And so as you leave the court feeling relieved and grinning from ear to ear, a reporter thrusts a microphone under your nose and says, all the evidence is stacked against you. You were caught red-handed. How can you be justified? How can you be declared not guilty? And frankly, you're embarrassed by the question. It is a problem. How can God, the righteous judge, take sinful people like you and me and declare us not guilty and right with him? How can he do that and not himself be a crooked judge? Well, to deal with that, Paul takes us off to the slave market, the second part of our tour, and the word redemption there in verse 24. For do you see, we are justified through redemption. Uh, to redeem something is to buy it back and that's why Paul has taken us to the slave market and horror of horrors as we arrive there we discover that we're the one in chains we're one of the slaves well, again we can't quibble we know why we're in this mess once we had a wonderful master he treated us better than we ever deserved he treated us perfectly he was always generous and kind but we abused his trust And the way we behaved towards his son was unspeakably appalling. Mistreating his son, we ran away from our master and becoming slave to other ways of life. We served other masters. Oh, we know exactly why we're in chains. And now a a crowd of cruel slave traders are haggling over our price. Any one of them will be a master from hell. And so we fear the worst. When out of the corner of our eye, we see our old master in the crowd. And he's deep in conversation with his son, the son that we mistreated. And the next thing we know is that the master has paid a massive price to buy us. He pays the ransom to set us free. And the price he pays? His son. In agreement with his son, the son is handed over in exchange for us and we're given back to the master. We're free and he has redeemed us. And so as we move from the law court to the slave market, we see that God did not just let us off. He paid a huge price. Paying the ultimate price, the price of the life of his son in Christ dying the most cruel death. 
That's why we read twice in verse 25 and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God didn't just let us off. The just judge can't do that. In Christ's death on the cross, God paid the perfect price to buy us back from the law's demands. What God's law requires, God's love provides. So we're justified, declared not guilty. We're redeemed, set free from our bondage to slavery. And as we're unshackled from the chains around our wrists and our ankles, and as we're handed over to our loving master, we're delighted. Until a thought passes through our minds and our delight turns to fear. He is a wonderful master, but we know we deserve his anger. We've rebelled against him and abused his son. We deserve only his wrath. And so this chilling thought, has he brought us simply in order to punish us? Well, to answer that question, Paul takes us to the third part of our tour, to the temple and verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. The word there is propitiation. It's explained in the footnote in the NIV. Propitiation is turning aside God's wrath, God's anger. Because that's the problem we face. Our sin provokes God's anger against us and it's right that he's angry with us. So as we arrive at the temple, the last part of our tour, and as we walk into the temple, there's blood, verse 25. There's blood everywhere. It's like a scene from the Chamber of Horrors. Someone has died an horrific death. A young man in the prime of life. You turn to the apostle and ask him what's happened. And he tells you because of the righteous anger of almighty God, someone had to die. And you ask, well, who was God so angry with? And the apostle replies, well, you, of course. Yet there you are, alive and free. Someone else has died an horrific death in your place. The wrath of God has been poured out on another, on the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed God's wrath into himself so that you and I don't have to face it. At the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. And so at the cross, not only are we saved, but God's reputation is rescued, verse 25 and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice. At the cross, God shows his abhorrence against sin. He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just let us off. And so at the cross, the righteous judge passes the guilty verdict and takes the punishment for sin upon himself. The author and Bible teacher John Stott writes, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself, who in holy love, undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. Yes, indeed, we are more sinful than we realize. But at the cross, we see that we are more loved than we could ever imagine.
Good Friday is indeed then very, very good. We are more sinful than we ever realized, but more loved than we ever imagined, and loved in the most remarkable way, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm justified, declared not guilty, made righteous, right with God. What a relief, what a gift. This is the astonishing truth of the cross and it should leave us lost in wonder, love and praise. And it means there's no place for pride, verse 27 again. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. I don't get right with God through keeping his law because I can't keep his law. I don't get right with God through religious observance. How could anything religious that I do cancel my sin? No, I don't do anything to get right with God. As a former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple said, all I have to contribute to my own salvation is the sin from which I have to be saved. My right standing before God, being declared righteous, has nothing to do with me or my performance. There is only one way to be justified, verse 28, by faith in Jesus' death on the cross. And that is deeply humbling. It means there is, verse 27, no place for boasting, no place for pride. And that should change the way I relate to others. Look, the problem with any worldview, any religion that is dependent on our performance is that it leads me to become proud. If I'm acceptable because I attained the required standard, if I'm deemed good enough because I kept the rules, then I have something to boast about. And as soon as I feel proud about myself, it affects the way I relate to others around me. If based on performance I'm in and you're not, I look down on you and then I treat you with contempt. I might even find myself secretly pleased to see you fail because your failure makes me look even better. But with the gospel, verse 27, there is no place for boasting because I didn't do anything to get right with God. And when there's no place for boasting, when I'm not full of myself and my achievements, then I'm more pleasant person to be around and I'm more accepting of you. I won't look down on you. I won't judge you because I'm no better than you. We're all equal at the cross. The cross profoundly changes our relationships. At the cross, there's no place for for boasting. And second, there's no place for exclusion. Verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the good God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. It's not by keeping God's moral law or by observing religious practices that I get right with God. No, I'm made right with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. All I have to do is put my faith in him, trust in him, and anyone can do that. So the gospel's for all. God can be known by all. All who trust in Jesus are put right with God, so don't exclude anyone. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? No, is God the God of religious people only? No. So don't exclude anyone. The message of Jesus is good news for everyone and so we must embrace and welcome anyone and everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no place for boasting. There's no place for exclusion. And third, there is no place for any other religion. Verse 30, 
There is only one God who will justify. All other efforts to get to God, all other world religions are about what we must do. They are a desperate attempt to work my way through a list of necessary requirements that make me acceptable to the deity in question. In short, it's down to me and what I do. Christianity, on the other hand, is uniquely about what God has done. Look, if we could get right with God through religion or through a moral standard, why did Jesus have to die? Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember his prayer. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's any other way to save mankind, then let me not have to go through this suffering of the cross. But he did go to the cross. Because there is no other way. Religion won't do the job. Trying to be moral doesn't cut it either. Jesus had to die on the cross for our salvation. So if anyone thinks they can make themselves right through morality or through religion, take them to the cross. Verse 30, God justifies religious people and irreligious people in exactly the same way through faith in Jesus and his death. So go to those in the office who are Buddhists and to your Muslim neighbours and to your Jewish friends and to the Jehovah Witnesses who knock on your door, all of whom are feverishly trying to do enough to make themselves acceptable to their God, desperately trying to earn enough credit to be accepted. Go to them and tell them that the one true God does the accounts differently. He puts us in credit with him by making a huge deposit into our account as a gift. He makes the most costly payment in Christ dying the most cruel death on the cross. And tell them that when we put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross, our account is put into credit by God. So go and tell all those who are trying to work their way to God that all their desperate efforts are futile and that God has done it all for them. And Christian, be sure to believe this yourself. When you feel the overwhelming weight of your sin, when you grasp that you are more sinful than you ever realized and you feel out of your mind with worry about it and beside yourself and frantic because of it, when you begin to fear the worst, that the wrath of God is all that you deserve, then know that you are more loved than you ever imagined. Feel the relief through the gospel. Hear the one true God say to you, although you stand before me with a record as long as your arm, Although you are in an impossible situation, although you should face the judgment and experience my wrath, and although you should be shut out from my presence for eternity, hear him say to you, in my son I died for you. And then listen to the father say, I see you as I see my son, the Lord Jesus. You are righteous. You are justified. You have been redeemed. The wrath of God has been absorbed by Jesus. The gracious Saviour bled and died so that sinful people like you and me can become precious children of God. Hallelujah. What a Saviour.